I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Like I said, I'm a big, uh, uh, I think the, the, the Mayfair Curzon was one of the first theaters I went to when I uh, visited uh, England. I'll tell the guys at the office. Excellent. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Thanks yeah. for talking. Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. In this episode, we've got more history revision than the Sparknotes bibliography as we talk to Quentin Tarantino about his new film and fairy tale. Plus, Christian Petzold's back and he's got a new film in transit. I'm Jake Cunningham and today I'm delighted to be sharing scenes from the QT with some QTs. Kelly Powell. Hello. And from Little White Lies, Hannah Woodhead. Hi. And looks like a background artist has stumbled onto set, <laughs> as Sam Howlett's here as well. Hello. 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 <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I think so. No, I don't think so, actually. Hey, I use the right language, at least. You're yes, not an true. extra. You're yeah. not extra to me. Background, you are extra, How are they call them now? Background artists? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Update update your lexicon, Hannah. Um, <laughs> all right, so we've got a couple of films to get into this week. We're going to start with Transit, uh, which is going to be in cinemas and on demand. And uh, Sam, you're going to tell us a little bit about that one before we get into it. Sure. So Transit is Christian Petzold's latest, he of Barbara and Phoenix. So this film uh, is about a man named Georg who uh, is in France during a German invasion and while there, he takes the papers of a dead writer and assumes his identity in order to escape uh, France for a better life away from the invasion. Um, while there, he falls in love with the dead writer's wife and the film gets very twisty-turny. But the big thing about the premise of this film is that it's based on a novel set during World War II, whereas this film takes pretty much the exact same story and applies it to a modern-day setting. What? I know. <laughs> That's mad. Crazy. Yeah. I don't think I understood that the first time I watched it. <laughs> and that's probably why. This documentary is very intense. <laughs> I remember I, I, when I first saw this, I remember being extremely confused. It is a really confounding and confusing and sort of labyrinthine film. If you like, don't have any kind of precursor to what it is. Mm. I remember we, were, we, we watched it together mm. and we were very like, I'm not sure. For the first half hour, it took a while to really understand what the film is doing. Okay. Premise. Because it doesn't really give you a guidebook. No, okay. there's no title card at the beginning. It's just suddenly Germany, German troops are invading Paris in the modern day. Right. And there's no kind of 
But there are like anachronistic elements. So like, you know, when he finds the writer's stuff, it's all on typewriter. And then you're like, wait, are we, are we back in time? Like we don't, it's, it's it's confusing. It is confusing. (laughs) But I also think it's clever. Yeah. But it's not confusing in a plot sense. It's no, it's confusing it's just, as in terms of a sense of space and the it world. it throws you straight Tem- temporally. in. Temporally, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, uh, a little bit like something like It Follows, where you feel like you've got a sense of this. Is this, this is like a Stranger Things 80s thing, mm. but then also there's a mobile phone, but also it looks like a seashell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but in a way, that's quite fun, and I suppose like it's just putting you in that discombobulating space that anyone caught in the transit of war would yeah. also be swept up in as well. This constantly changing location and time exactly. and yeah. identity. At the centre of it, you've got a really interesting uh, performance from um, is it uh, Rakowski, Franz, yep. Franz Rakowski. Um, who's kind of got these kind of sunken eyes and just kind of... He's very working Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. Very working Phoenix. He's very interesting to look, to watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. To look at To look watch. at. <laughs> to watch. Yeah, exactly. He just has such a kind of unassuming, like gentle way about him. He's also in um, Terrence Malick's new film in a supporting role, um, A Hidden Life, and he's very good in that. But it's similar kind of like, very like softly spoken, kind of, you know, just living his little life and uh i this is the first film i'd seen him in he's been kind of around for a while i mm. think but um i think this is like really quite for such a like a role that kind of is not a big showy role a lot of the time he's just waiting in corridors or listening to other mm. people talk or queuing. And a lot of queuing, oh, lot of queuing. good good queuing i movie. feel his pain <laughs> <laughs> just applied for a visa I get it. <laughs> oh god the, the i think the endless bureaucracy oh. is just it gives you a real sense of kind of the how boring it is to be stuck mm. in this endless like, and you literally are like you yeah. are in this weird liminal space that you can't you can't go anywhere. It is basically they all are stuck in this sort of purgatory. Yeah, in a way. yeah. He tells that great an- like anecdote slash like story about the man who is waiting to go to hell, mm. and that that's what it feels like. The whole film is just kind of waiting to decide if you're going to hell or not <laughs> yeah um, yeah and um especially because he's you know he's playing opposite uh, paula beer who's playing this kind of like wispy like very glamorous looking woman looking for her dead husband and he's kind of <laughs> just even the way like he dresses he's like kind of you know shabby and like, mm. you know hunched over like really beaten down by life we're not exactly making it sound like a romp <laughs> no, but it is definitely a thriller. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. it's, refugee yeah, that, that, that's it. Like, um, it's it, really tense. Yeah, this. Yeah, like, there's some that, that lives of others quality. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's much. a good comparison. Yeah, yeah. And you're constantly waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah. Because you know that's that's what happens during during the. I think I think uh, the film builds up tension really well, mm-hmm. um, and even small things towards the end, you're like. Everything hangs on the decision that he makes. You know, mm. you're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> you're very invested. I, I thought it was an excellently paced movie. Okay. Um, and yeah, you get you you do kind of get very uh, invested in his journey. Mm. Okay. Well, talking of things building up to terrible events, um, should we uh, should we move on to our second <laughs> film of the week? Sure. Uh, from one historical rewrite to another, <laughs> uh, and this is uh, this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which is a film I have to say I was not excited about in the slightest. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you a little about it first. Uh, so this is Quentin Tarantino's ninth uh, feature set on the kaleidoscopic 
uh, expansive Hollywood backlots and uh, they're featuring their sun-dappled stars and how they, they rub against the countercultural forces of 1969. Uh, we've got movie moguls, hippie burnouts, Steve McQueen, Bruce Lee, and our, our main guides through this are Rick fucking Dalton and uh, an action hero on the wane and his uh, lovely stunt double friend Cliff Booth. And then alongside them, we've also got Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate uh, as uh, behind the camera something far more dangerous than your your star waning steps into the spotlight. Uh, can I just ask around the table? I've kind of played my hand already there. Your, your thoughts on Quentin Tarantino going into this, Hannah? Yeah, uh, I'm a big Tarantino fan uh, for my sins. He's like one of the filmmakers that got me into film to start with. I remember going to see Inglourious Bastards when I was 16. I got my brother to buy me the tickets because he was older than me. And uh, my mind was blown. I was just like, wow, this is what you can do with cinema. And I was excited for this, even though I think um, hearing the words Quentin Tarantino is going to make a film about the Manson murders is like, ooh, no. You know, it, it doesn't, sound like the most kind I, I thought that I think I said this in my review for Low Lies that the potential for this to go so badly wrong mm. was extremely high and yeah. it was I, I I I mean I should have trusted him but I was like this could be in, in incredibly poor taste yeah um, I'm about 50-50 on his films uh, uh, the last one that I liked was Inglorious Bastards uh, mm-hmm. Sam uh, massive massive fan I remember getting the uh, Tarantino box set on DVD when I was younger and uh, I got through those pretty quickly and yeah, I've been a massive fan ever since. And I think every time he releases a film, it's a big event. Like sort of everything stops when he releases a film and everyone's like, okay, how is this one going to be compared to the rest? <laughs> and I do, I do get why people have kind of lost um, their excitement around him sometimes, like yourself. I do agree that things like Django and The Hateful Eight weren't quite his best because they are very long. They're quite bloated. It feels like he's crammed a lot of just his brain into them. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I'm always excited to see what he's doing and I think this is definitely one of his best. Uh, Kelly, you both love him and were well up for this idea as well of him doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally on board. I was like, yeah, okay, show me what you got. <laughs> no, I love him. And uh, you were lucky enough to speak to him as well. A very scary moment for me because he is one of my idols. He also was one of the, the filmmakers that got me very interested in film when I was younger. And... Um, I was also trepidatious given his track record sometimes if you could if you offend him slightly in an interview um so I I kept it very much uh, above board um and he had some very interesting things to say about the film and he was lovely to talk to actually and um it was a very very enjoyable conversation Quentin Tarantino, thank you so much for coming on to the, the uh, Curzon Film Podcast. Cool. I love the film thank a you. lot. Um, I wanted it to be longer. No. <laughs> I didn't want it to end. <laughs> thank you. Um, so the film takes place in 1969, which is the turn of the decade, mm-hmm. um, and it's taking place during a period of, of a lot of changes, politi- yeah. politically, culturally, I- ideologically. And I wanted to ask you about your choice to contextualize the film uh, against the backdrop of the Manson family mm-hmm. um, during what is ostensibly the end of the golden age of yeah. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the thing about it was it was very interesting to set a movie in Los Angeles County in 1969. Uh, it's interesting to kind of come up with some characters. There are uh, a variation of composites of some real people and then also throw some real people in there. Yes. Um, but one of the things that's also 
very disturbing about, about that time is there is this Manson family there. And I mean, it's crazy the weird little connections that they had just into in the, the framework of, uh, uh, of the Los Angeles Hollywood community. I mean, just even like, I mean, whether it's minor, th okay, like a couple little things is, uh, you know, the house that Sharon Tate lives in in Cielo Drive. Uh, the reason the Mansons knew about it is because Terry Melcher, who is like the uh, uh, producer boy wonder of Columbia Records, he created uh, um, Paul Revere and the Raiders, he lived there. So they knew the place from, from visiting him. Not only that, the piano that you see uh, uh, Abigail Folger playing straight shooter on, that's the piano, because at one point, Mark Lindsay, the lead singer of, the, uh, of um, uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, lived with Terry Melcher at that house. He wrote the song, uh, uh, Good Thing. <laughs> on that piano, all right? Or even just the fact that Terry Melcher is Doris Day's son. And so he comes from Hollywood lineage. See, there's, there's all these three, uh, uh, six degrees of separation between the Manson family and all these weird people, uh, uh, weird celebrity luminaries from Hollywood. So I look at it as like, a, um, I'm painting a really pretty picture. Now it's, it's a memory piece, so there's gonna be a little bit of uh, rose-colored glasses here. Uh, but I'm painting a really beautiful oil painting of Hollywood at that time, but the but the family is like the painting has got mildew on it, like on this little corner here and this little side here, and that mildew is little by little through the course of the movie spreading mm -hmm. into the painting and into the picture. Okay, um, so your film explores the illusion and myth making behind the, you know the American dream, yeah, um, and which is sort of constructed and reinforced by Hollywood and the Dream Factory itself. Uh, and this comes in many forms, but most notably, you know, the dwindling careers of, 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 yeah. of Rick and Cliff. Um, yet, cast as these characters are two of the biggest <laughs> Hollywood stars today. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your choice when it came to that, casting these two amazing actors? Well, uh, I will, you know, they're, they're these huge movie stars, and I definitely take advantage of their charisma yes. <laughs> that they have. But like you just said, they're two terrific actors. And uh, and they just invested in the characters in in, in just w wonderful ways. So it was, uh, and and also they, the two characters between Rick and Cliff. It's weird. There's a, I think in all my movies there's a duality that goes on in, between subjects and characters inside of the same film. And now this one is almost that's the point of it. Um, but on one hand they have to go together because one is, li is literally the double of the other one. So he's gotta actually look a little bit like the guy. He's gotta really look like the guy when he puts on the guy's clothes. Yeah. And he's gotta literally function in a movie on screen as the guy's double. Um, but their personalities could not be more different. Uh, you know, uh, 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 Rick is just a, is a bundle of neurotic nerves and he, he faces all these trials and tribulations, unfortunately, they're all of his own making. You know, he, he's inventing all of them for himself. Cliff, who by comparison seemingly has nothing by comparison to his boss, uh, seems to just exist in this zen state where everything is good. Now, there's a reason for that when you find out that, like, it, he could be in jail. Mm -hmm for the rest of his life. So any day he's not in jail for the rest of his life is pretty good as far as he's concerned. So there's a reason why for his uh, uh, strange serenity. But uh, but uh, I think that was, uh, but 
those are two great characters to bounce off of each other in that regards. Yes, definitely. Um, so, you know, your, your characters in your movies are, are usually larger than life in the very, very best way. Um, but there's something about these two characters, these, this, this buddy couple, yeah. that feel very vulnerable. Yeah. And they're almost, they are, they feel to me like real people playing characters rather than being characters existing in oh, a movie. And they, they also live, are populated in this, this world that they have actors playing real people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, um, did that affect, you know, the way that, the form of the film in any way? You know, the way that you saw dialogue or the way that you shot the film? You know, the answer to that question is not really, but... One, not really, I didn't quite realize how different they were. And to tell Frankly to tell you the truth, I started reading reviews, all right? Because uh, um, to me, they were just like my characters. And, and I always invest a tremendous amount in my characters. And I th always think of them as, as three-dimensional characters. Having said that, though, I've heard some different reviews, and they made a, they've made a couple interesting points. So I've never because I'm in my stuff, so I don't I try not to look outwards until until right now. Yeah, afterwards. Yeah, um, and uh, people started making the case that look, my characters can be good, they can be three dimensional, whatever, they can be all that, but for the last at least decade or so, they have been genre archetypes. <laughs> Yeah. Now I don't quite think about them that way, all right. I think about them as 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 real people, as probably as well as as well as should. But I guess at the end of the day, they they are genre archetypes, and these characters aren't. They're uh, you know Rick is the character who plays genre archetypes, and just even the fact that he's probably my first lead character that is just plagued with self doubt. Is <laughs> you know I mean. Jackie Brown had her own self-doubt and had her own problems and was working to fight fight out fight them out. At the same time, she, she's still kind of a realistic black exploitation archetype, and it's also based on a novel. So I didn't. So as, as much as I changed the character, the basic character was still Emma Leonard's character. In this case, this bundle of neuroses that is Rick was mine from the very beginning, and I guess that is quite different from yeah. what I normally write. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, I think it feels like one of your a very personal film to you, mm -hmm. um, and you know your love of Hollywood. As it's almost as people have said, it's a love letter to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. You know, was it always going to be at this time that you made this film? Have you had the idea in mind all the time, or uh, no? I've had this idea. I think sometime after, um, I've been working on it like solidly for sections for the last five years. But I think I first came up with it sometime after Death Proof is when I first kind of came up with the idea. And But I wasn't in any hurry. So, you know, uh, uh, like the guy who puts, pushes the rock up the hill for so long for Sisyphus. the rest of his life. Yeah. yeah. I can never say that now. Obviously. So when I say it, it sounds like syphilis. All right, you know, uh, uh. So uh, uh, in, between each, in between whatever I was doing, I would just kind of push that rock up the hill further until I abandoned it. And uh, this time I was doing that again, and all of a sudden, hey, Sean, I'm gonna get to the top. This is gonna happen, where I'm gonna, okay, okay, well, I guess, I guess that's what I'm doing. Um, so that, you know, so that was actually kind of cool, pushing it up there. Um, I think it all worked out in the best way, because if 
I did it five years earlier, I don't think I would have got these guys. I don't. I definitely. I really don't think Margot would be in it, and I can't even imagine the movie without Margot. Mm. Um, but then there's other things. Okay, like for instance, if I had done the movie, say eight years ago, but okay, we'll say ten for sure, ten years ago. So say two thousand and nine or something. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it would be looked at a little differently. I mean, for instance, like in two thousand nine, most of the big critics out. Would have been uh, would have been alive in, from 1969. Most of the big critics were like much older than I was, mm -hmm. you know, uh, nine years ago or ten years ago. Now most of the critics are younger than I am, you know. So there would have been a a, a, a frame of reference mm. that a Todd McCarthy or somebody from Variety would have that uh, uh, somebody writing for BloodyDisgusting.com doesn't have. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you so much for for being on the on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Like I said, I'm a big. Uh, uh, I think the, the the Mayfair Curzon was one of the first theaters I went to oh, when amazing. I uh, visited uh, England. I'll tell the guys at the office. Excellent. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Thanks yeah, for talking. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you, Quentin. Right, so I said I'm not really up for Quentin Tarantino. I was really not up for this film. <laughs> Definitely not him doing the Manson murders, that's for sure. Absolute shocker, lads. <laughs> Lo loved it. It's really good, isn't it? Is it is really good, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, weirdly, I know, Hannah, you're not a fan, but this is, like, to me, the closest we'll get to a Quentin Tarantino, Richard Linklater film. Oh. <laughs> it's a stretch. Uh, yeah. Well, he, but it's just a hangout, isn't it? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. what I really loved about the Quentin film. Quentin Tarantino's Dazed and Confused. Yeah. It's very much like that. Um, it's very much just this kind of, like, day in the life of these almost slacker characters just hanging out on the, like, the sundrenched streets of California, just doing their thing. And that's not what you expect from a Tarantino film in the slightest. Like, think of how much happens in the first hour of Django. So much happens, and then you've still got, like, almost two hours left of still so many things happening, so many shootouts, so many twists, so many this and that. So many Australian accents. So many Australian accents <laughs> that shouldn't have been done. This is so, like, like, two hours in, really barely anything has happened in terms yeah. of plot. It's great. It's really good. And I, I kind of think that this is the best time that his dialogue and characters have been deployed because <laughs> the setting actually makes sense. Mm. Like, even though everything is super heightened and it is a fairy tale, this is also the most realistic that they felt because yeah. these characters that or these people that like just chew on dialogue and come up with mad things to say in a 60s Hollywood setting on back lots and trailers and things, mm. it kind of works. Totally, mm. yeah. I spoke to him about that. 
Um, and I was I was very interested in the fact that it's so multi-layered this film um, in subtle and not so subtle ways. But they do feel like the most vulnerable of his characters, um, and they're not the larger than life as I as I mentioned in the interview. They're not the larger than life characters or, or caricatures sometimes that we find in a Tarantino movie. But um, yeah, these these guys, these protagonists, feel very real in a world that's very. Um, it doesn't feel nostalgic. It feels. Mm. Romantic, romanticized in a way, but but also based in 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 reality. Um, and you feel like he is kind of just recreating the Hollywood that he, you know, loved. Well, and and, and filling it with nice people. Like yeah. that's that's a shocker it's as well. Horrible human mm. beings. Like, is this yeah. like since Jackie Brown has he actually had nice people in his films that you you kind of root for or like can empathize with? Yeah, in Inglorious Bastards, Shoshana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shoshana. <laughs> like, this is it. like this is like, I don't like as much as I've enjoyed his previous films. There's not a lot of characters that I've really connected with or haven't had any like emotional payoff from yeah. them. And yeah. this is the only time that I've like I welled up. Well, I think usually his film, characters, which are I would, I've not come close underground to. hitmen, yeah. criminals, assassins. Mm. Yeah. This and that. Even Jackie Brown is a full, you know, uh, sort of uh, like drugs trafficking, money laundering. <laughs> you know. These are the first Tarantino characters I can think of that have actually pretty much just been someone you could... I know they're Hollywood, but, that you know, definitely Brad Pitt's character is someone you could easily live next door to and see every day and not really bat an eyelid. Mm. And they were rare for him. I would definitely... I mean... (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, the friendship... The the whole film is really just about this friendship between Rick and Cliff, and it is the sweetest relationship, I think, in Mm. in any Tarantino film. Yeah. They really do, like love each other so much it is yeah. very touching to watch nice and yeah. Leo, I think Leo cries like three times in this film yeah he like, does little, little uh, Rick's a very emotional guy and uh, I I was really I was not expecting to go into a Tarantino film and come out thinking like that was really sweet yeah <laughs> really, like, yeah heartfelt you kind know of. It, it really does feel like one straight from the heart from, from Quentin yeah and I, I don't think any of his films have really dealt with like friendship in that way mm. <laughs> yeah, he's made yeah. a film about friendship but you know like, all the kind of rela- all the relationships between men in his other films are like kind of um, built on either like Jules and uh, Vincent being like colleagues or you know in Reservoir Dogs it's like there's something horrible there's, that there's macho-ness yeah. to them as mm. well yeah um, there's always something kind of horrible that ties people together and in this film it, it's not really that at all it's, it's kind of the opposite it's just like the buddy movie yeah it really sweet is. buddy movie yeah, <laughs> yeah. True. and I think for me Leo is better here than he was in The Revenant which Don't I know he's yeah. the gotten the Oscar for but <laughs> like th- he's he has such a variety of performances within Rick Dalton mm. um, like it reminded me of Catch Me If You Can and his work in mm. that where he like you can get a sense of him you can mm. get a sense of the characters that he's playing and where they intertwine and um, he's not just like slogging through the pain and showing you how much he can feel all the time mm. I mean he's, play- he's an actor playing an actor mm. playing roles in like films and TV which I think is kind of incredible to watch you know the way he turns it on off and on in the film so when you see Rick like kind of off screen he's a bit of a mess he has a stutter and he's kind of as i already said he's always crying um, but as soon as he kind of goes on set he's you know total professional like you know there's a beautiful moment um where he's waiting to go on set with um the child actress who plays 
kind of opposite him in one of the TV shows that Rick Dalton is doing. And they have this wonderful exchange where she's basically like giving him a pep talk about how to be an actor. And then they go and do their scene together. And it's the bit from the trailer where she like whispers in his ear, that was the best acting I've ever seen. And he kind of loses it. And, you know, (laughs) I do kind of wonder how much of Leo is in this character because, you know, he's been around a very long time and I think for a while there was kind of like oh where where did Leonardo DiCaprio go like you know he especially before the revenue it's like oh he's, he, he really wants that Oscar mm. he's not, not got it and now you know he took a few years off after that right I think rightly so um but yeah for, for for me I think this is definitely like his best work in years and in a just world he would have got his Oscar for this but, yeah you know. absolutely. well he may still get it mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know <laughs> Um, For me, the stand-up performance is Brad Pitt. Yeah, he's oh, yeah. so good. I love how he's this sort of, he's, you know, he's this old stunt man, this old sort of relic of the golden age of Hollywood, and he can't get the same work he used to <laughs> because of a reason uh, with Bruce Lee. And he's this sort of old, beaten up, past his cell boy day, old cowboy, and that could be a really sad character. But this character doesn't really care. He's quite happy just living in his trailer, feeding his dog, just being. Uh, Rick Dalton's right-hand man. He's also still very cool. Oh, exactly. He's, he's so like cool. So he's so cool. cool. He doesn't care that he's past yeah. his cell date. Whereas Rick Dalton's he, he losing doesn't his know mind. That he's cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. Rick, yeah. Rick thinks, thinks he's, he's cool. cool. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And his scene, his scene with Bruce Lee is incredible. And the scene where he visits the Manson ranch oh, is fantastic scene yeah. on the span ranch like, yeah it's like the standout yeah um, but that's too. like a proper horror scene yeah, yeah so it's it everything. reminds me a lot yeah. of um, in Inglorious Bastards the scene where they're in the bar I, and yeah I think that scene is too long I think this one is kind of pitched too right <laughs> we said before we started that Inglorious Bastards couldn't be cut down <laughs> that one scene I think could be cut down in Inglorious Bastards because it does go on for a very long time but in um, Hollywood this scene on the span ranch where Cliff is kind of goes out there and is trying to work out kind of what's going on it is like yeah it's like a straight horror film you're again as in transit you're waiting for something horrible to happen Mm -hmm. and then you're Mm. kind of like oh god this is not going to end well Mm. especially having the knowledge Mm. of where he is as well you're like okay and we're in a tarantino movie (laughs) and we haven't seen any blood yet yeah Yeah. you're waiting you're like when's it going to start it's going to start soon when's it going to start right so again go back going back to waiting for bad things to happen there's a bit of a margot robbie shaped elephant in the room that we haven't (laughs) spoken about Yeah. yeah Um, so that w- that was my big grievance going into this film, hearing Quentin Tarantino plus Manson Murders. And I really didn't like the idea of that as well. Um, and I've been listening to, you must remember this, the Manson series that's all kind of yeah, giving I'm you that Manson. To it. it's, like, it's very good. <laughs> it's really good. Would recommend for anyone listening to this who wants yeah. to kind of build their knowledge of that. I kind of had a rough idea of Manson and Charente and that, but not a lot more. And that's really helped fill in the blanks. Um but I think this film actually does an amazing job of humanizing Sharon Tate. Of oh yeah, giving her a life beyond just being. Well, that's what this, the pod- this the- podcast that we're listening to very much talks about. How Sharon Tate is now just famous for being mm. a victim of the Manson murders, whereas this film actually doesn't really treat her like that, and it gives her some really nice moments that may or may not have happened. But she feels like a really fully rounded character. Yeah, um, we've mentioned the film being so sweet, so warm-hearted. Mm. Like, there's a bit where she goes to watch a film that she is mm. in, and that is so sweet, yeah. and you really feel for her. And she kind of she views the world in such an interesting way. Like, you watch Margot Robbie's performance; it doesn't feel like you're just watching her be her. Like, mm. she she's got these 
wide eyes that even when she's driving a car it's like she's looking around like she's captured this dream that she had of yeah. Hollywood and she's really viewing it and taking it all in and properly living it mm. um, and it becomes this celebration of her as well as being this celebration of Hollywood and those movies at the time that Tarantino maybe wanted to make and then found this way of wrapping in mm. this expectation of violence that people might expect from the Tarantino film as well mm -hmm. Um yeah, it's really interesting. And and you have these three roles of Rick and Cliff and Sharon. And then there, there's con their convergence kind of within the final mm -hmm. 25 minutes or so, um, which will divide people. I mean, there are flashes of your Tarantinoisms that I didn't go for mm -hmm. in that final act. But I feel like the uh, kind of maybe even final five, uh, I suddenly was... Cry, back. crying and was like or oh, what I was not expecting this from mm. QT <laughs> yeah um, it's a good film it's a really good film really good yeah um, and it's the only time that I've come out of his films and thought I would quite happily go back and watch that again can't wait to see it again yeah. immediately I wanted to watch it again immediately yeah um, and it's super long it's two hours and 40 minutes yeah and doesn't feel uh, like it yeah the take I'll leave you with is that it's the only one of his long films that is worth being as long as it is that's not true at all we don't all agree we don't with agree that. with that that's <laughs> we not don't agree the, with that that's not the, uh, the opinion of the podcast <laughs> so on, the, on that sign of unity with my opinion uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think just literally for we do these recommendations like this is for I mean, fans of Tarantino and yeah. Yeah. just yeah but I think this could bring in other people. Yeah, I like, agree. Even is... like your La La Landers could get something <laughs> yeah. out of it. Sure. I mean, I think for anyone that's kind of turned off by Tarantino's violence, this is his most accessible film up until the last 10 minutes. <laughs> if, if, if you don't like violence, maybe turn it off 15 minutes before the end. Yeah. But, but, then, um, but then like come back to it. Come back to it. Then, yeah, like there's like one scene and then, you know, it goes yeah. back to being lovely. Yeah. What's well, great when a filmmaker can re can do something that they're like, okay, my fans would definitely like this, but also new people as well. Oh. <laughs> but at the same time, he's I think... He's just reaching like, out, isn't he's he? He's just opening his arms. I yeah. think, you know, <laughs> um, I, I saw a, a Xavier Dolan film last year in Toronto called The Death and Life of John F. Donovan. So you're which... the one that saw that. <laughs> Me and a, and, a, and a single cinema, the only people to have seen this movie. But that, to me, um, this is tangential, but I think it is related. That, to me, felt like um, Xavier Dolan being like, this is me, and I don't care what anyone thinks. And, you know, it was a very... People didn't like, like it, and, and the people said no. People did not like it. And, uh, uh, and then his latest film was at Cannes, at the same time as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which felt much more kind of like he was like, okay, I'm going to dial it back and make something that's really personal and just like doesn't feel like I've got anything to prove. Mm. And I think Hollywood feels like that. It feels like a kind of a filmmaker who's been around for a, you know, a long time now and has faced a lot of kind of criticism, but doesn't is kind of, you know, he's made his peace with that. He's made his peace with the fact that people aren't always going to like his movies. Mm. He, for me, seems to have kind of grown up a bit. I think that, yeah. you know, there's far less kind of like masculine showboating in this film. And it's his, it's his least showy film. Yeah, like, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And again, like if you're kind of going into it, hoping for like, you know, ultra violence and swearing and everything. You're going to probably be disappointed. But yeah, I, I, it really worked for me on so many levels. Great. All right. Um, so that will be on, uh, that will be in cinemas uh, this Wednesday, the 14th of August. And uh, it's also on 35 millimeter screenings at Curzon's. Uh, so check their website, see which screenings, which locations you can get to on that. But I would recommend seeing it like that if you can. 
Sam, is there anything happening on home cinema beyond sure. Transit? So we've got Transit, we've got Christian Petzl's previous films, Barbara and Phoenix, and our Cousin 12 selection this month. So that's films you can watch for free if you have a Cousin membership. Uh, once Upon a Time in dot dot dot. So we've picked 12 different countries to match with that theme. So for example, Once Upon a Time in Turkey, we've got Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Once Upon a Time in France, we've got Weekend, etc, etc. We've got Fish Tank for Once Upon a Time in England. Oh, lovely. All right. Um, so that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Transit. If you've got any thoughts on them, you can always let us know on Twitter by tweeting at Curzon Cinemas, or you can tweet us all directly as well. I'm over there at Jake H. Cunningham. Uh, Kelly, you're on Twitter as... KS underscore Powell. Sam? At Sam Howlett underscore one. Anna? Uh, good job, Liz. That good job, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, thank you so much for listening. If it's your first time uh, listening to the show, then do subscribe. You can do it on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you could leave us a review or a comment, that would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, but until then, from the Sunset Strip, farewell. Farewell.